Welcome to Making Sense of MarTech, a regular set of conversations with some of the most interesting people in marketing, tech, and advertising. I'm Juan Mendoza. I write the MarTech Weekly Newsletter, a weekly email that covers important shifts in the marketing tech industry. You can read, listen, and subscribe at themartechweekly.com. Okay, today we have Ari Paparo. He is the famous host of the very popular Marketecture podcast and the CEO and founder of Launch Science, a newly launched, pardon the pun, startup in the category of process management for go-to-market and product teams as they get their products and their services into market. Uh, prior to this, um, Ari founded and exited the ad tech platform Beeswax to Comcast, and he's also worked stints at Google, Nielsen, and App Nexus. In this conversation, we talk about the overlap between the ad tech and the finance industry, anti-patterns in product launches, the fool's errand of software businesses trying to do media, the surprising second order effects hitting ad tech in our greater shift to a more private web, and how Ari feels about all the negative press directed towards the ad tech industry right now. Uh, so we're set for a fascinating conversation, and I'd like to welcome Ari. How you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. This is pretty exciting to be on the other side of the interview for the podcast, uh, given that I've been doing my own podcast quite a bit lately. Yeah, well, uh, welcome to the other side of this of the of the table, mate. Really good to have you. I want to talk about, I guess, where your story begins with Marketecture and the podcast. Um, a series of years ago, you exited the ad tech company Beeswax, and now you're founding a bunch of new things. So. You're a media entrepreneur and you're a software entrepreneur, but I want to know why you're not on a beach somewhere enjoying a margarita <laughs> and early retirement. What's keeping you in the game? Yeah. I don't know. It's a good question. I, I literally, after I exited Beeswax, I wanted to figure out what to do. I spent one year at the Acquirer, which was Comcast, and that was enough time off for me spending a year as an executive at Comcast. Um, so I, uh, I made a, I made a spreadsheet and I ranked, I made, first I brainstormed everything I could possibly do with the rest of my life. And then I had columns in the spreadsheet that weighted, you know, things that were important to me. Like, am I good at it? Am I likely to be successful? Is it fun? Is it creative? Will I make money at it? Um, and I created a ranking for all that, a heuristic. And, uh, first of all, the lowest thing on the entire list. Like after I ranked all 40 things I possibly could do, the thing that ranked the lowest, according to my own heuristics, it was scientific, <laughs> was stay at Comcast. Uh, so that was kind of funny. Uh, and then the, <laughs> the number two thing on my list was start a new company. And the number one thing was start multiple companies. Um, so I had to follow the science. The spreadsheet told me what to do. So I started multiple companies. Have you considered selling this spreadsheet to other people that have kind of lost in their lives? <laughs> it is a very good idea. I could probably, uh, <laughs> the only people who need it are people who have a lot of money. So I could probably charge a lot. Um, mm. Maybe this will be the new thing. What should I do with my life? A sp spreadsheet heuristic. Yeah. Get it on there. You can do a few Twitter threads, you know, drive up the growth, the growth angle of it, you know, you know, <laughs> I how I became a successful enough. entrepreneur with my, you know, my life decision spreadsheet. You got to give it a yeah, cool name. Yeah. You got to give it a cool name. The life matrix. Yeah, yeah. The uh, I don't know. I'll have to come up with a name, but it's <laughs> it's it's helpful. The problem is that most people yeah. aren't very honest about what they're actually good at. So yeah. you know what I was good at was one of the most important columns, and so I had things on the spreadsheet like go into politics, and I was like, I'm terrible at that. I would I would fail so horribly if I went into politics, even though it'd be interesting. So it got ranked low. 
Mm, well, well, I've got a I've got a question for you on that on that politics. Oh, you do. Okay. At, at the end, at the end of this conversation. Yeah. So hold on tight <laughs> for that one. Uh, but but I guess the follow on from this is that okay, the top of your spreadsheet was found multiple companies, and you're doing that now. But you've stayed yeah. in the ad tech world. You haven't gone out of that. Your architecture is obviously the marketing ad advertising tech landscape and and tracking that and launch science. I guess is a. a adjacent really to ad tech it's not really it's ad tech and really it's just more SaaS, isn't it yeah yeah um yeah. so here's how that happened so launch science was a passion of mine because yeah. i've worked in a number of scaled companies you know by scaled i mean ranging from 100 to 10,000 employees including google but mm. also some some you know 500 employee companies and every company i've worked at has been terrible at launching new features and products. You you see this when you see finger pointing, when the Salesforce is saying, oh, I don't know what product's working on. And the marketing team says things like, oh, we're being asked to launch things every week and we don't have the capacity. So every company I've worked for has this problem, including Google. Um, mm. it, so this is a problem of product marketing, among other things. And, um, and there is no tooling for that. So that was kind of the impetus for launch science. I said to myself, let's create the first SaaS product to solve this uh, launch problem, otherwise known as like a commercialization problem. Um, mm. So I had this idea, I pursued it. And then I said to myself, well, it's kind of silly that I'm one of the world's foremost experts in ad tech. I, I'm, I'm not tooting my own horn. It's just the fact. I'm, I like know more about <laughs> ad tech than any other human being on earth, right? And yeah. I was like, it's kind of silly that at my age, I'm just going to walk away from that, right? Mm. You know, I, I should do something with that. Maybe I should write a book. And I was like, maybe I should write a podcast. Maybe I should do a newsletter. And then, mm. unfortunately, one thing led to another. And I said to myself, well, let's turn that into a business also. Um, and that's how Markitecture was born as sort of, uh, Markitecture is a expert network of B2B uh, experts. It's um, it brings not just me, but I have collaborators as well, like Eric Suford, who's probably the world's leading expert on mobile advertising, um, and Mike Shields, who's an expert in television advertising. And I brought all of us together, and we're producing content and monetizing it through various forms. So, so that's how I ended up with two businesses. Yeah, it is. Um, it is interesting, right? Like the the whole concept of um there was a concept for this it was a name. I forget who it was. They called it the multi-SKU creator. So SKU e-commerce term or retail term of like, you got multiple products on the shelf, right? Each, each product is an SKU stock keeping unit. And this is a multi portfolio, you know, another one, right. other person said, you know, you got a portfolio of small bets. It doesn't look like these are small bets. These are actually quite large bets given the caliber of people on your, uh, your podcast, on your podcast for architecture, but then also what you're doing with launch science as well. So how do you explain that? Unpack that for me. Like, how do you navigate both the demands? Because running a startup um, and you're scaling and you're growing and congratulations, launch sign actually just launched in the week in which we recorded this podcast. So right. you're launching a company and you've got this podcast schedule to keep and customers to keep happy. How do you balance those two things? Do they work well together or is there conflict? How do you address well it? Yeah, so the main thing I'd say is they haven't conflicted yet. Um, I've been able to manage the time commitments, but it is a risk. I had a somewhat of a naive uh, 
point of view on Marketecture, which was that at some point I was going to be able to transition from CEO of that as a business to mm -hmm. just a contributor, like someone, uh, you know, Juan, you know this, like you're kind of, you do the podcast, but you're also the CEO and they're very different. Um, and I thought exactly. like, you know, I'd get the podcast going and some other things going and then I'd bring in a CEO. And that was pretty naive because the business is too small. And I don't mean it's not unsuccessful. I just mean to bring in a CEO with a full salary, you need a pretty big size and it's not there. Um, so I'm in limbo a little bit. I feel like I, I'm not doing a disservice to either of those businesses, but I do need to resolve it at some point. I don't want to be the next Jack Dorsey who's like a good CEO of one company and a crappy CEO of another. And then there are the savants. Ari, you might be a savant where you can actually do both really well. You know, there are people that are like that, that they actually get, it builds momentum in both angles, right? Like, and having the two yeah. spaces, even in my own career, before I went full-time on the MarTech Weekly, I found that the side project, which was the writing and the podcast, really helped build momentum for my actual full-time um, job, Monday to Friday, because it was yeah. just the act of creating things and bringing stuff into the world. And you're like... This is great and it builds that momentum. So, you know, maybe maybe you can do both. You know, there's nothing to say you can't. What I've found, and I'm still working through this, is that from a perspective of capacity, number mm. of hours in a day, um, I have the ability to do this easily. I'm very efficient. I could write, I could create podcasts, I can do management, I can do a lot of things. So that's not been a problem. But the caution is, and I, I would caution other people about this, is how do you wake up hungry for both businesses every morning? Mm. Because you may find that one business drives your day to day and the other one not so much on a given day maybe it switches and if you're ceo of all, of one business you should wake up every day waiting to break down walls to make that successful it's hard to do that for two businesses yeah you have to pick pick your battles each day right and there, there's right. with each company there's going to be fires you need to put out so sometimes it's like yeah, exactly. what's what you're hungry for or which fire should i put out first you know? and uh, yeah. again it's the like I think the real test of any co company leadership or the company you're running is when you're in the, the hardest moment, right? You still enjoy it. And of course, yeah, those two things, the two companies or the three or whatever, however many you have, there's going to be one you enjoy more than others. And one will sort of fade away to, to the other, you know, but that takes time. I mean, you know, it does take time to shake that out, but architecture has had a huge impact on the, particularly ad tech industry. I mean, it is the go-to place for, you know, getting like real insights, not talking points, not press releases, but real insights about what's going on in the ad tech space. And I want to talk about that a little bit later around how you're building your media business and 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 how I guess a lot of um, technology leaders are thinking about building their own media business and some of the pitfalls there. But before we dive into that, I want to talk about uh, something we talked about actually um, in a uh, prior meeting about uh, I guess the heuristics of the finance industry and the ad tech industry. And there's a lot of overlaps there. Um, there's a lot of overlaps between, I guess, um, you know, finances, you're trying to get an ROI on whatever you're trying to invest in or you're acquiring a business and, you know, there's capital going in, you want to see a return. In ad tech, a lot of those same dynamics are in place. You're just buying media instead of stocks or assets. Um, how do you see the overlap? Is it a good thing a culturally? Uh, that uh, those two industries overlap uh, very closely in terms of the, the incentives? Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting topic. I, I, th I see them as analogs more than overlap in that yeah. they're, they have similarities and, um, and not a lot of other industries do. So uh, advertising for the first 
you know, 100 years it existed, was entirely illiquid, meaning that the transaction to buy and sell an advertisement was a one-to-one transaction that had no resale value, had no intrinsic value. It was only valuable to the advertiser and only valuable to sell for the publisher. And then in approximately 2008, the first ad exchange was invented. And as a result, advertising became liquid for the first time in much the way a stock market makes a equity position in a company or a bond liquid. And so the story of advertising from 2008 to the present has been largely about the expansion of that liquidity. I paraphrased the famous software eating the world phrase from Andreessen Horowitz, and I have been saying programmatic is eating the world, programmatic advertising. Uh, yeah. Effectively, <laughs> a programmatic event from a, a niche, it, it became yeah. a niche. It, it started as a niche. It started as as a way to yeah. sell banner ads that nobody else wanted. Uh, you would just put them up for auction. And now, you know, 15 years into this revolution, um, it is available for TV ads and for outdoor display ads in on billboards and virtually every single ad you see in a web browser or a phone. So the it's been an amazing transition. Um, and so what does it mean to be liquid? Well, it means that a given ad slot has multiple buyers that are bidding on it real time. Probably most of your audience is familiar enough with this. I don't mm-hmm. need to dumb it down, but basically you have auction dynamics, you have multiple bidders, you have the highest price winning, you have a lot of really intense technology that's high scale. And my last company, Beeswax, we were not by any means one of the largest companies in the industry, and we would regularly do a million transactions per second. Uh, and that is just mind blowing for many technologists and many business people who, um, unless they're in the finance industry, are nowhere near to scale that sort of scale. So it's it's kind of really interesting in that regards. It has some real differences, though. Um, the main difference is that in the finance industry, a asset, meaning a um, say a single share of a single equity company, is entirely fungible. Um, a share of Apple is worth exactly the same if you buy it from one party to another party. I bought it yesterday, bought it today. Um, whereas in the advertising industry, every impression is different because it's to a different user at a different time and advertising's value takes place between the ears of the viewer of the advertisement which is an impenetrable black black box (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah well you're right about that there is a lot of funds going in in, okay what's the decision making behind the allocations here yeah it's a great point yeah right showing the exact same ad on the exact same site at one in the afternoon when someone is having their lunch versus at two in the morning when they have insomnia is totally different. Yeah. Uh, and so I would argue that there are a lot of similarities, but actually advertising is much more complicated than uh, finance. I would agree with that. I think that depends on the area of finance, if it's venture capital, private investing, or if it's public investing, like particularly public, it's much more visible. You know, the stock ticket goes up or down. You know, okay, right. cool. You know, you put money in asset, there's no real, real way to get away. You know, there's no way to obfuscate the numbers when it comes to a return. You know, did the company grow year on year revenue? You know, that's a hard number that every business really should have and, and you know, for their investors as well. Um, but with ad tech, it's, I don't know if what you think about this, but maybe it's more adjacent to gambling as opposed to finance <laughs> because <laughs> it's got that, it's got that uh, uncertain outcome to it. And well, yeah. what do you think? 
I mean, well, finance does too. I mean, do you, you don't yeah, know if stock's going up or down. Maybe it's more yeah. equivalent to options trading than anything else. It's um, <laughs> Because you really don't know what it's worth and it expires at some point. Um, uh, the thing yeah. I like to tell ad tech people is that um, your jobs are much harder than finance jobs and you're paid a fraction of the amount. Mm. So, yeah. And, and it's, <laughs> and it's more like what, because it's more complex because of the black box situation where you don't know exactly the logic that's going in, in terms of um, those placing those bids. Is it that, or is it because of the trillions amount of decisions that have been made throughout the supply chain of, you know, you, you place a bid on an ad all the way through to um, targeting that user and then delivering it is it because of that mechanism where there is just a lot more decisions being made through that pipeline. Yeah, the volume and the yeah. uncertainty of the value. So you're you're yeah. buying things more often, yes. and you have less signal about what they end up being worth. So you have to you have to do all these interesting techniques on both of those fronts to um, to try to bid appropriately and also to learn as quickly as possible if your bids were accurate or not. Both are pretty hard problems. Mm. In a, an adjacent field, perhaps not so ad tech or media buying, um, something I think is uh, like a concept that's growing and particularly in the martech industry is thinking about your data as an asset so you use a finance term right it's an asset your data your data warehouse your data you're storing in a company um, i've worked with several enterprise brands big chains in retail and and farmer and in all kinds of spaces and they build teams to manage the asset which is their database basically you know their data warehouse all their customer data because i know that there's incremental value of using that data to do all kinds of stuff, run personalization on their website or their mobile app, use it to influence their you know, who they're targeting with their advertising. And so, you know, I've got these concepts that are so fluid, right? They can go across the lines a bit, but I look at that, it's like, yeah, if you steward it well and you invest the right team and the skills, you know, you get an outcome from that data asset, which is better targeting, better experiences, better relevancy for your customer um, as well. So, you know, there's there's a few different aspects here, which is quite interesting to sort of tread through. Um, but I want to jump now into launch science and think sure. about the, I guess, how you approach this business. I mean, it's, it's very interesting. I, I kind of looked at it and I said, this feels like a process-oriented tool, but I might be wrong about that. You're trying to solve that problem around launching well. Perhaps you can talk me through some of the anti-patterns first. Like, what do you see with companies and how they fail? What are the commonalities when a product launch just does not go well? What do you see? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I think when people think about launching, and this is how what I thought about when I was creating the company, you picture a big yeah. launch. You picture Steve Jobs up on stage with the iPhone or something equivalent. Um, yeah. And that, that's great. You, you have to do all the work to make your CEO look great up on stage and to get it all going. Um, but modern companies, especially technology companies, um, have changes going on with their products every day, every mm -hmm. week. Um, and so one of the major anti-patterns is to only pay attention to the big annual launch and not to pay attention to the incremental changes that drive your business. And so what I hear when I talk to CPOs, head, chief product officers or CMOs, 
is mm. often things like, oh, we have a process, but we only use it for the big things. And there's stuff going out all the time. And I get complaints from the sales force. They don't know about it. Um, yep. The product managers are asking why we're not doing any marketing for this feature, because we only have one product marketing manager and, and she's busy. And you have a bunch of misalignment between the velocity of change that's going mm -hmm. on. And I'm talking about positive change, you know, yeah. improvements and features and things like that um, versus the ability of the rest of the organization to absorb and leverage those things in sales, service, and marketing contexts. So that's so, one big thing. So it, it, it is the view there that one of the bigger problems is that um, marketers see launches as a point in time and not an ongoing journey or like a, it's not a sort of this business as usual state that you always need to be prepared for. I think that the problem that marketers have that the CMO and the, and the product marketing teams have at these companies, especially bigger companies is triage that they mm. say, well, in order to make a difference from a marketing perspective, we only care about the real needle movers, the real things that matter. Um, and then if you flip over to the product management team, mm. they will say things like, I'm really annoyed because three out of four things I'm working on just go into the ether and no one even hears about them. Yeah. Right? And they're both reasonable points of view. <laughs> Uh, yeah. they're, they are, no, they're a reasonable point. points of view. Yeah, it's um, and, it, and there's politics involved and there's other yeah. things involved. Um, so what I believe is that um, part of the problem is a lack of tooling uh, because every one of these um, activities to commercialize a change, to, to announce a product change is ad hoc. It's in spreadsheets, it's in wikis, it's in some, some CMS that no one knows how to use. And I believe that by creating effectively the first tool built for this problem, that we can solve the problem, or at least make it more efficient, um, which will ultimately drive the business value, which is increasing the ROI on your product development. Awesome. It, it is it is interesting. So, so it's, it sounds like an alignment problem more than anything else. That like I, to illustrate this, I was talking with a company, huge SaaS business, right? Well, the most well known in their category. I won't mention their name, um, and uh, their their territory manager, right? For Southeast Asia, uh, I was just chatting with him, and I said, "Hey, what's coming up on the product roadmap?" And he could not tell me. Yes, he could not tell me. <laughs> like, and he, he's You're a guy. Right. He's building partnerships. He's running a sales team, and. He's running the the he's and the marketing for the, that region. Couldn't tell me, and he's like, MDU, I don't I don't need to know. Like, it, it's not relevant. Ask me for anti patterns. This is one of the this is one of the most common anti patterns, which yeah. is a U.S. based product engineering team has a roadmap, but the mm. roadmap is not really accurate for regions outside the US. Yes. And then the you have tons of people, really well-meaning people in the Asia Pacific region, in sales and customer service and marketing, who are totally misaligned because they don't know really at a granular level what features are available in what quality in their region. And by quality, I mean, I've been, I've seen numerous examples where a feature just doesn't work as well in the Asia Pacific region because mm. of latency, because of tax laws, because of all kinds of things. Um, this is the essence of good commercialization is you take the feature being built by product engineering 
and you you do the work to figure out how it will be available and when it will be available to all different customer types, customer regions, teams, et cetera. And then you communicate that as actively as you can. That, that's Those are some of the North Stars that we're looking to in, as we build Launch Science. Hmm. So I guess this alignment problem, process, commercialization problem, all of those things, how do launch side, like, how do you actually address that within the software? Is it, is it a, because it, it seems to me it's um, some of those solutions are not tech related. They're actual culture and, and, you know, like culture and like even experience and skills related. So how do you approach that from a software perspective? I'm, I'm very curious. No, uh, we don't have any, any, um, hallucination that we could solve all these problems. Um, But without tooling, you definitely can't solve these problems. Um, So effectively, you could think of our product as doing two things really well, uh, workflow and communication. Um, So for workflow, what we're doing is we're pulling in data from upstream of commercialization, basically from JIRA. Uh, so if your product team is using Jira, we integrate with Jira, we pull in all your epics, all your projects, and then we let you see which uh, projects are being worked on from a commercial perspective. Um, and then we give you a page that anyone in the company can see that shows you the status of each work in progress product launch from small to big. Um, and then as you go towards the point where you are launching things, we allow you to publish and to publish internal or external notes saying this feature is available. Here's the notes. Here's the PowerPoint you need to use. Here's the caveats. It doesn't work in, you know, South Timbuktu or whatever it is (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and put it all in one place. Because right now that entire process is this jumble of wikis and spreadsheets and Google Docs and OneDrive Docs and all this mess. And if you're imagine, put yourself in the perspective of like, a new sales guy on day one or sales girl on day one who has to sell enterprise software. And, you know, it's overwhelming to understand all the nuances to what is actually available, what's coming, what's not coming, where the history is. So we think it's a pretty rich space, a pretty rich problem. And, you know, over time, as we evolve this business, we're going to solve more and more of it. Well, I, I, I'd like to apologize on behalf of Australia for Jira Atlassian. I think that's, they're part of the problem in a big way because they're a, they're a Sydney Australian based headquartered founded company, two university students founded it have a long point, 15, 20 years ago. And it's grown into this almost like coders law kind of, this is how you do things in building product. You use Jira, you use, you do it in sprints, you know, there's yeah. a certain architecture to the information. And a lot of that's actually has been set originally by um, yeah, by Atlassian, which is again a fascinating topic that's adjacent to this, is that a lot of the constraints are actually set by the software and what, like, how flexible it is. You know, like uh, in my business in the Martech Weekly, we use Notion. The reason why we use right. it is because it's infinitely flexible. You can turn a group of documents into a spreadsheet in one click. You know, this is not an ad, ad for Notion, by the way. We don't take sponsors, but I like it because it's so flexible. Like I found that in the past, particularly working enterprise in Atlassian tools and also like the others, Asana and Monday.com and others that I found that they're just too constraining. They don't give you the flexibility. So it's interesting to hear you say that launch science integrates on top of these existing tools to pull up the right information for say, like who would be the end user? Like uh, the person that would be looking at these dashboards and feeding this information through. 
The, it depends on the size of the company. This is kind of a fascinating yeah. thing we've discovered, which yeah. is the ideal customer is a product marketing person. Yes. Uh, so product marketing as a title is is relatively new um, and it varies a lot between companies. And what we found was a lot of companies don't even have product marketing and they put all the responsibility for this um, launch process in the product management team. Um, and so product management is often the, the user of our product up to the point at which a company is big enough to have a product marketing team. Um, and then there are some companies that have a different team. It's called product operations, and that team is appropriate. It really runs the gamut, which I think also speaks to how nascent this discipline is. When you don't have a very well-defined role, that, that speaks to the fact that you also may not have a well-defined process. Um, so it's kind of it's been pretty interesting for us to learn about this. I've interviewed, I want to say, 60 or 70 product marketing, wow. product management teams at this point, in-depth interviews, hour-long, take notes. And so I'm really learning a lot about how people do stuff. And it's, frankly, a bit of a mess. Um, so we're hoping to contribute to making it better. So of all the companies that you surveyed, and the ones that obviously you've seen um, working in action, is there any that really get this right? You want to give a yeah, shout out? Sure. I, I don't want to name the company, but I'll tell you what it means to get it right. Um, what it <laughs> means to get it right is it first, it's clear who is responsible. So this person, this team is responsible for commercializing new features. Done. Mm -hmm. Number two, alignment between that team, product marketing and product management. So regular, regular meetings, reviews of the JIRA board, what's coming, what is, what's on the roadmap versus what's unexpected that's coming because of an emergency, whatever. Number three, same process every time. So we have, they have either spreadsheets or they use a tool like Launch Science or Asana or whatever it is so that they have the same template they're gonna use every time. Number four, the launches are sized. So big launch, very different from small launch in terms of how much time and effort you should spend on it. The spreadsheet may be different. You may not need legal approval on a little launch. You may not need finance approval, those sort of things. Uh, five, communication, you know, you're sending alerts to the rest of the company regularly. Here's what's going on. Here's our status. Here's what you need to know, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so, so those are kind of five off the top of my head. There's more as you go through follow through, but th those things are the things I saw among the high performing teams I interviewed. Yeah. You know, there's one, there's one company that, uh, from perhaps from a marketing and communications perspective. Um, has been really impressive to me. It was um, high touch data. They're a reverse ETL platform. Basically, what they do is they're trying to disrupt the customer data platform category by being more warehouse native. And what's interesting about these guys is that they've been launching a new product every, I would say, every three weeks. And everything from tag management, events collection, through to personalization APIs, through to dashboards and analytics, you know. And I'm like, how the hell do they do that? How do they launch so coherently every three weeks? It's insane. I've never seen anything like it before. So it's three three co-founders, and they've got a product marketing team of about five or six people, I think. Um, but but what's fascinating to me, what they get right, is that they're able to join. And this is a you know a, a, a scaling startup that's about three four years old. Bear in mind, this is not a large enterprise business. They they're able to connect the dots between what they're shipping and their overarching narrative in a way that I haven't really seen before, which is pretty interesting, right? So they go, okay, we're disrupting this category, and then like we we launched this thing because of this reason. And the CEO would actually write an article 
unpacking the philosophy behind why they need to do this. And it's like step by step by step. And it goes to your point about not having the one big bang and go, oh, you know, no one showed up, you know. Yeah. <laughs> what one yeah, actually one that's a good example. I mean, example of like joining the dots between the narrative. I want to give one quick bad example, which is not really in our space at all, which is the the Walmart metaverse launch that happened back in 2022 at the start of 2022. So it was so they built this space in I think it was Roblox. I mean, it's a kid's game and it's like Walmart land, right? And the CMO <laughs> Got on the virtual right. stage, right? He got, yeah, he got on the virtual stage and he did a, he did a 10 minute presentation in his avatar. And there was a grand total of three or four people at his speech and in the virtual theater stage in the Walmart land at Roblox. And you look at that and you're like, clearly they didn't think about launching that properly. And it got caught on Twitter and everyone's like, clearly this is just the dumbest idea ever. Um, and then it turned into a negative cycle, right? If they, if they recruited, like, I don't know what happened, but if they recruited a bunch of young kids to be in there and actually be part of the ceremony of launching this virtual world, they might've done better. And so I wanted to give some duality to that. There's no coherent narrative. Like what the hell is Walmart doing in Roblox in the first place? A grocery chain. Okay. You have to explain right. that. It wasn't explained. And that's hence why no one, it was just crickets showing up. And then the other side is that, that joining that narrative, that, 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 point of being with their actual product development and what they're bringing into market. Yeah. Yeah. So my comment, uh, yeah. first my comment, and this has been brought up to me a bunch is like, yeah. I cannot make your products better if they're bad products. Like that is not yeah. what I'm in the business of. Um, you really do have to build products people want. And that is beyond the scope of what I can help you with. Um, there mm. are other tools that try to do that. Um, uh, but I think you, the thing you brought up earlier in that, uh, case study was about releasing something really valuable every three weeks that's on target. Mm. Um, and so I want to, I want to talk a little bit about my philosophy on that. So at my last company, Beeswax, our, one of the things our customers loved was the sense they got that our product velocity was very fast. Um, mm. Customers at B2B in B2B love it if you are shipping products very often uh, because they feel like their investment in the platform is being rewarded. And when they report a bug and it gets fixed a couple weeks later, they feel great about that. So it's important, I think, that product velocity is as, is as fast as is reasonable. And what we did at Beeswax, which I thought was interesting, may not be a best case scenario, but uh, so I'm just going to give you an example of what we did that was effective, was that we did a monthly release note. So hmm. we would we would work in an agile way with some features launching whenever they're ready, other features with a little more prep, with with launch processes, whatever. But the point was the first like Tuesday of every month, we would try to send out an email newsletter that says, here's what we launched in February, here's what we launched in March. Hmm. And it would be kind of a mix of big stuff and small stuff and bug fixes. Um, and that helped us leverage a pretty small team because we weren't doing the product marketing on every single feature. We were just doing it once a month. And secondly, got our customers trained to know, oh, beeswax, they are shipping. They're, mm -hmm. they're a company that ships every mm -hmm. month. I get that newsletter. I look forward to it. Um, so maybe that's appropriate for the listeners here. If someone finds that valuable, go for it. In a sense, that's what Apple does. They only release once a year. They just release a lot of amazing stuff once a year. Right. Or it's really twice a year, once for the developer conference, yes. once for the consumer conference. Um, mm. Having that cadence, even if it's not a month or a year, mm. you should know what your cadence is. It shouldn't just be whenever the code's ready, we ship it. Like it should be it should be defined and it should yeah. be uh, sensible. Yeah. And if, if you're waiting for the code to be ready, it's never going to be ready. 
And I think that's the point is that having a schedule is incredibly important in terms of what you're launching. You know, for the MarTech Weekly and what we're doing as a media business, we're trying to launch one big thing each year. Right. And and the things that make sense, you know. So when I Smart. really at the start, when it was a side project, I launched a newsletter in day one or year one. Year two was a podcast. This podcast making sense. Year three was a collaborative podcast. This was last year with Scott Brinker. We did a um, talk show, launched that called Big Martech. But we also did also launched Pro, which is our paying premium subscription, our first monetization. This year is our awards program, which is TMW 100. It's probably been the biggest launch that I've done instead of ever in the existence of the business. But again your point right like i'm starting to think even personally about how we launch stuff is having that expectation that is going to be one big bet every year it drives excitement and it drives that anticipation but at a deeper level i think particularly in b2b software customers that use the software and in the marketing tech world i think this is so pertinent and important they need to believe that the future of the product is in good hands because in a lot of ways, the people using the software in the business, their career is constrained by what the software can do. And, you know, often there's hundreds, thousands, millions of dollars going into these contracts. So if you're buying Adobe or you're buying Optimizely or you're buying Salesforce, well, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of stakes going into this. And so they need to feel comf- uh, confident that the company is going to evolve with the future as, as fast as they will be, you know? So I, I hear what Absolutely. you're saying with Beeswax customers saying, this is awesome to see these releases come out because it gives them confidence that the software will evolve with them over time. And at the startup level, there's yeah. more you can do in that area. Like, um, yeah. especially if it's, if you have say less than a hundred customers, um, you know, let them contact the CEO, you know, give them your email, give them your Calendly. You talk to your customers on a executive level. Those sort of things matter enormously. Nothing to do with launching, but, you know, just also with beeswax, it was a little bit unusual in that we had a very high uh, ACV, um, our average customers in the many hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we didn't yep. have that many customers. We had, I, I knew all the customers by name and, mm. and, you know, you have to use that to your advantage. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. And that's, it's so important, right? To keep those connections alive and, you know, showing them awesome new stuff and the problems you're trying to solve. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, okay. We talked about launch science um, and congratulations on the launch. Did you have a little lesson? Do you have one lesson out of your launch of launch science that, uh, so I think it was just this early this week. We just featured it in the newsletter this week, the week beginning the, what is it? The, uh, where are we at here? Um, week beginning the 11th of September, but yeah, do you have a learning or out of the, out of your launch from launch science? It's a bit ironic, but yeah, it is a little ironic. Um, well, one thing I'm doing just to reinforce the point I just made is that, um, my personal Calendly is available on our website and in all the emails we send to our initial free trial customers. So I, I wake up in the morning and I have like four or five random half hour meetings to demonstrate launch science to people I've never met before. Um, and that's been kind of fun. So that's like getting the feedback, time? getting opening up a channel of communication, not just saying, hey, here's the new thing and go check it out. It's actually, if you want to know, you, well, yeah. you're a few clicks it's like away. Speed dating. Yeah. I'm just showing up on a Zoom <laughs> and I'm like, hey, John, what's up? What are you interested in learning yeah. about launching? And uh, yeah. I'm learning stuff. That's a cool idea. That's an awesome idea. Um, so, okay, we've talked about launch science, but I want to talk about architecture, the podcast, because okay. what's interesting to me is that those are two separate businesses. Obviously, one will influence the other. I'm, I'm 100% sure of that, that because you know, you're know you in similar domains. 
But it's a standalone media venture. You know, you mentioned that you eventually want to get a CEO involved to run the business. It's going to be its own thing, its own business model, its own monetization strategies, its own customers. One came before the other. So it was architecture, then launch science. Uh, but I am interested to think about, I guess, your point of view on building media products and to what extent software development, software businesses should actually get involved in media. I want to tell a quick story before you dive in because okay. it might help illustrate and frame up a bit of uh, maybe some of the uh, rationales for this one. Um, so I had a conversation uh, about a month ago with a software business out of India, a great company. Uh, like I'm really impressed with what they're doing. And they launched a newsletter, a Substack. And I sat down with the CEO. They asked for some advice on building media. And the first question I asked them was, what, what is the purpose of this media venture? Is it to drive leads and, and grow the SaaS business, a software business? Or is it you're going to spin it out and it's actually going to be its own thing, its own team, its own monetization business model? And he said, no, it's existing to drive leads. And I said, okay, well, those approaches are extremely different. Which one, like, I guess you, the content you're doing now seems very focused on actually building a business model. If it's for driving leads, then you're better off just creating a better blog on your website. But that's my point of view. I, I want to throw it over to you. What do you think? What, is it a fool's errand that uh, for software businesses to trying to build standalone media products? What do you think? Um, well, I'd say there's some nuances to this conversation. I think yeah. that a CEO blog or an engineering blog is a very useful tool. I'm using it as part of Launch Science. So Launch Science has a blog that where I'm mm. publishing articles about my learnings about how to launch products successfully. It's great content marketing. It comes if it comes from the CEO or a senior exec, you can get some attention. I think it, I think it's fantastic. SEO, SEM, it's all good. That's not a media business. That's content marketing, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's a, a different thing that I've come across quite a few times, which is companies in the MarTech space who have a lot of data because of their core business, who believe that data will be useful for marketing and advertising and want to utilize it. So this would be like e-commerce optimization companies, email companies, landing yeah. page optimization companies, all these folks who, especially in the third-party cookie era, which is coming to an end, they just found themselves with terabytes of consumer data that they effectively weren't really using. Um, and the mistake these companies made very frequently was believing they could flip a switch and just start getting media revenues. The media revenues would just start flowing in to them without becoming media businesses. That it would be like a, a royalty kind of situation. Yeah. I'm sitting yeah. on, this, on this, you know, treasure trove of data. And that effectively never works. Um, the reasons, there's many reasons, but one, the main reason is that they did not realize that their customers were sophisticated enough to be using that data already. So the customers were not naively ignoring the oil flowing beneath their feet. The customers are also using that data for their own benefit, using sophisticated ad tech stack tools, the trade desk, Google, whomever. And these, these MarTech companies were naively thinking that they would be the first to tap the oil well and would be able to, you know, produce alpha, as the finance people like to say, on behalf of their customers that no, had never been touched before. Um, and the reality is that they were going to have to get their hands dirty. They were going to have to drill the wells and pump the oil and build the pipelines and get into the media business and all of its dirtiness. Um, and 
201 media companies have ended up being unwilling to do that. Um, and so I've seen this scenario so many times uh, where companies say, oh, we want to be a media business. Oh, wow, that sounds really hard. That's going to have weird balance sheet implications for us because we're going to get paid really slowly on the media. We have to hire a bunch of salespeople to call in agencies. Agencies aren't our customer base. We're, we're a tech company, et cetera, et cetera. And it ends in tears 90% of the time. Um, so, so that's my little diatribe on on the um, turning into a media company um, dream that dies poorly. <laughs> Who was it? Um, I think it was Benedict Evans. I think he echoed this, or he said it originally. I can't remember, but he said that you know uh, a lot of these venture capitalist firms are so not software, but you know venture capitalist investment firms. They're like media businesses that happen to monetize through their investments. <laughs> um, well, venture capital firms are notorious for like creating yeah. highfalutin newsletters and calling themselves media companies. Um, mm. Like Anderson Horowitz is the worst. They they created a full media company. I forget what it's called. It's called like Forward or something. something oh, it's like Future. That. It's called Future. Future. Yeah. And yeah. it's basically because they had this West Coast sensibility that uh, the East Coast media didn't understand tech. The East Coast media understands tech plenty. They just think you're a-holes. Uh, <laughs> so creating your own media company doesn't solve that problem. <laughs> well, it shut it, right? They closed it, it after. Did they... It did I remember it was hilarious because they launched it and they, they, they bought the domain, future.com. And I think they interviewed, I, I, I caught an interview with the person responsible at A16Z for it. And, and they said, oh, you know, like this, this domain future.com must have cost a squillions. They're like, yeah, we don't want to talk about how much buying just the domain <laughs> was, you know, they invested big. The branding was beautiful. The, the original tranche of content was actually fantastic. But then six months later, one article a month, you know, and then right. someone retweeted as like, you know, I haven't seen much from future and said, you know, it's, you know, Mark Andreessen, it's time to write, you know. You know how they say it's time to build. You know, it's time to write. <laughs> it's time to write. That's a yeah. Way it's to burn. time to start writing, and then they shuttered it because yeah. they don't have the. Yeah, you're right. That like the problem maybe wasn't right, but it's a really good case study on the everyone thinks they can do media. I think that's the the assumption that like social sure. media has given people is that oh you know we've got a huge Twitter following. Yeah, we can build an editorial product. No worries. It's way more that goes into it than building, like doing great Twitter threads and reaching people through social media. Yeah, I mean, look at the New York Times, which is a media company. They're doing great with things like Wirecutter, mm. product reviews and or valuations. You, do you think Walmart could have created that product? Um, I don't think they could have. Uh, they don't. The the investment ahead of results, the ability to ma remain neutral, the yeah. um, quality. It's just not really in their DNA to do that. Yeah. And, you know, even with, yeah, I guess what, what I'm doing with the MarTech Weekly, um, you know, I was part, I was working for a consultancy. I wasn't a stakeholder, I was just an employee. And uh, I found that over time, as the MarTech Weekly grew, it was too closely aligned with the consultancy. So I wasn't allowed to come to events and report on them. You know, I wasn't allowed to do certain things because I'm, uh, it was kind of seen as a, con a consultancy running a media business on the side, but it was not the case at all. It was, I was literally just an employee um, and I was doing it as a side project. And so that's one of the reasons why I kind of left and then did it my, as a, my own thing as a media business. And now after six months, the perception has changed quite a bit and it's kind of almost treated as a standalone separate media business early days still, of course, as a startup. But the thing that's fascinating to me is that uh, the perception changes, right? Like when people know there's a thinly veiled sales pitch somewhere in the content, People know that. Right. 
Right. And and I think media more than anything is about trust. That's my view. It's about actually yeah. trusting that the content is valuable, help and trade media. It's it's helpful for their career and their business and their strategies. And if you don't have a trust position, you know, if if it is a thinly veiled sales pitch, then it's probably just not going to go anywhere. That's my view. I'll, I'll give you a little a little bit of pushback on that, which is I I've spoken to many uh, of people I would say you're are your cohorts, so folks yeah. who are independent media entrepreneurs yeah. at this point, and there's a pretty wide variety of business models that are not yeah. all editorial. Like some yes. are pay to play or hybrid pay to play, where it's editorial mm. but you have to pay to get on the podcast, and some of them are doing really well, and I don't think that they have a necessarily a bad reputation for mm. being for having a commercial model that's not pure editorial. And mm. now in Marketecture, we have been pure editorial to date, um, and um, and I'm proud of that. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna, you know, talk down to the folks who are media entrepreneurs who have a mixed model. Mm. Oh, and I and I don't think so either. Like I I've seen some fantastic. Like there's one shout out for Databeats. They do that mixed editorial where they do sponsorships, but it's like proper collaborations with companies, and they'll do like three or four series on a specific topic with like the CEO of X and Y tech company. That's great. Yep. I mean, you know, you know, this is a well established media model. I, what I'm getting at is more. I'm building a media company to sell my products. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm selling my own stuff and. I don't know. I just think that it, it's it's one of those things. I, you know, you're very unique in your situation that you can do both, or you, you're managing both. But media is like all consuming. Like me personally, I'm on on Twitter every day. You know, I'll probably spend yeah. way too much time on Twitter and LinkedIn. You know, um, I I'm browsing content, looking at my RSS every day for stories and insights and for narratives, because it's just like the default mode of my brain working in a media business. Absolutely. I mean, I'm on Twitter all, yeah. every day for before I was yeah. in the media business. Um, can I do a shout out to some independent media companies? Oh, I'd love for you to do that. That'd be great. Uh, so not in any order. Beat TV, B-E-E-T dot TV covers the TV business, especially in the U.S. Uh, been around for 20 years. Sounds Profitable is a partnership with, with Marketecture. They are the experts in everything about podcasting. It's a great business, small but great business. Uh, the Rebooting is a uh, newsletter about media by um, Brian Morrissey, who used to be at Digiday. Um, Mike Shields podcast and newsletter, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but he's also an expert in television. Um, this is like a short list of companies I've just run into since I started working in architecture who I've just started talking to that are all doing unique B2B content in this sort of independent, um, independent sole practitioner media business. And I think it's really fascinating that everyone can make a living doing this. Yeah, it is. It's, you know, you look at this span of history and, you know, even 20 years ago, this would not be a possible, this is no, like, this would, you know, like this is a new terrain and I get that like legacy, well, established media institutions, as you mentioned, New York Times, Washington Post, et cetera. These companies have an important role as the, you know, the fourth estate, you know, like actually holding truth to power and all of that kind of thing. Um, but then, yeah, you know, uh, Sam Harris calls it, you know, sub right? Like it's this whole territory <laughs> of, you know, of people that are like um, doing their own editorial products, they're doing media. It is confusing, but to your point, it's fantastic to see, particularly in trade media, 
in B2B, some fantastic um, authors and journalists and um, researchers getting out there and actually building audiences around their stuff. It's fantastic to see. Absolutely. It's such a unique opportunity, I think, right now. We probably may not see it again. You know, things will change maybe in 10, 20 years. Maybe we'll say, oh, wow, that was a golden age of kind of free publishing where you could monetize audiences directly. You know, we may not see that again. So it's a really cool time to be in it. That's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So I wanted to dive in into uh, a little bit more about the, I guess, the ad tech industry, MarTech, Marketecture, the podcast. You guys are tracking so much. I don't know how you get like some of the news stories, particularly on Media Math recently and the, its implosion. You know, that story, you guys jumped straight onto that. I was so impressed with how quickly you guys were able to turn around a really thoughtful series of content. But I guess around the ad tech industry, there's all these shifts around privacy. It's one of the biggest things happening in ad tech right now. Cookies are going away. Google's privacy sandbox is ramping up. You know, you've got Apple's increasingly closing the walls around all kinds of things you can do with your tracking and analytics. And there's this greater shift in regulatory bodies as well and consumer sentiment. It's all this stuff funneling into a more private web. Um, and uh, on the Making Sense Smart Tech podcast, we've done this topic to death. And I don't want um, really a view on what you're seeing holistically, but more um, uh, what I'm seeing is that there's a lot of second and third order effects happening. A lot of things that are surprising yep. me in this shift of privacy, but I'm curious, like what are some of the surprising developments for you as the ad tech industry becomes, I guess, quote unquote, more private? Yeah, I, I like to call this the blast radius effect, which is yeah. when the privacy uh, curtain comes down, there are certain folks who are right in the middle of the blast radius. And like when GDPR came out, the first thing that happened was that any vendor that was location-based left Europe because there was no way for them to be compliant. So they just got hit on the head with the bomb. Um, and But then the blast radius starts going wider and wider and you have um, mainstream ad tech companies starting to limit their behavior. And now three or four years after GDPR, you have Facebook starting to be under quite a bit of scrutiny uh, by the regulators in Europe and potentially moving there. There's some talk about them moving to a paid only model in Europe because they just can't support their advertising business. Um, and I think the same kind of effect may happen in the around the world when Chrome cookies go away, um, which is some business models just stop working. Uh, you know, retargeting using third party cookies really gets hit pretty hard. And then other business models may have a delayed effect. There's quite a few companies in the MarTech space who are underestimating the effect of this change, who do things like, um, you know, recommend products for folks or, you know, a lot of ABM companies have mm, very mysterious yes. algorithms <laughs> by which they figure out what companies people work for. And those mysterious algorithms uh, may, you know, they may have cookies as an ingredient in the witch's brew. Um, and and I, I do think a lot of people are going to be a little shocked to see that some feature or some whole product they rely on for their sales process just stops working or works a lot less effectively in, you know, April 2024 versus where it does right now. <laughs> I, I think it's kind of a good thing because yeah. one of the problems with the current world is that it is hugely biased. And what I mean by that is that if you think of like 40% of the current world as being uncookieable, meaning Safari and mobile, and 60% of it being quite cookieable, meaning Chrome, mm -hmm. 
that means that every single action you take in an AdTech or MarTech platform is actually biased towards the Chrome users, whether you really realize it or not. And that could bias could result, it could be an effect of, you know, better, better optimization algorithms or more better reporting or attribution or all that sort of stuff. And some things may not be obvious to you that they're biased that way. And we know for a fact that Apple users are higher, higher value. Um, than Chrome users, just on income. Um, and, uh, and so it's hard to fight that bias because in many cases it's implicit. And the removal of cookies will be a leveling factor that will make the bias go away or it will be less, more subtle, I would say. Mm. And it could actually produce better actual results as opposed to better you know, measurable results there in the status quo. That's what I'm thinking, at least. It, it may. I mean, I, I look at it as a positive shift. I think that, you know, perhaps marketers, you know, Miles Younger actually mentioned this in our podcast. He said that, you know, for a long time, we've turned marketing into, in the ad tech world, into a game of numbers. It's all just pure maths, you know, numbers in, numbers out, you know. Um, but I think this will force, without that heavily reliant, heavy reliance on that um, third-party tracking, it may rely on marketers to focus on things like saliency and rememberability, you know, like being able to actually create, do creative that customers remember over time, as opposed to just reminding them all the time across various websites, you know, it's like uh, the difference between, you know, being, you know, nagged by your mom and actually seeing something awesome and inspiring. And you're like, I want to remember that, you know, so that's an interesting point. I think, you know, for me, uh, there's two that, uh, that really stick out to me is the resurgence of contextual advertising. If you look at Google search trends, uh, it was massive in the 90s before because it was kind of a bit of an arms race with third-party cookies coming out and then contextual advertising. Back in the day, it wasn't really that sophisticated at all. But now I'm seeing like startups like SeaTag and GumGup, like next generation using AI to do can place sure. contextual ads and do brand safety and stuff. I think that's an interesting category because that doesn't rely on data sharing as much as your, your typical targeted advertising and programmatic. Um, yeah, the I mean, problem with contextual yeah. is yeah. that um, it only works on a portion of the content. A lot of content yes. has no context. Yes, and nothing, yes. Nothing you're going to do is going to change that. Um, yeah. And so in mobile, yeah. for example, the gaming category, which is 90% of mobile ads, has no context. Mm. And, yes. Um, so I think there's a, there's a ceiling to how effective that yeah. gets. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think there is, but we, we may see some of those... Um, content trends change around it you know I'm, I'm just looking at okay what are the alternatives outside of that data sharing economy the other one is like everyone getting into retail media i mean retail media or commerce media the most surprising one was just recently into it quickbooks mailchimp TurboTax. they're building an ad network very interesting sure. because it's be creating this um i don't know how you say it but in my view it's like a land grab for all the different types of highly enriched first party data that you can monetize with ad space there's going to be winners and losers but i think that's interesting that just that that growth on like independent first party data focused um ad networks within these um, ecosystems the internet's big enough to have them i guess i guess it's surprising to see companies like quickbooks and turbotax and intuit get into that I think, I think some make more sense yeah. than others. Um, it, for architecture, I interviewed the head of advertising for Uber, and mm. it was one of our most watched episodes. Um, and it's really interesting because Uber has you in the car looking at your, at your app, but mm. also they have um, Uber Eats, which allow which is able to recommend products or restaurants as you're in the context of trying to decide what to eat. Um, I'm not sure in the Intuit context that I'm going to change, you know, choose an accountant while I'm trying to balance 
balance my books, but maybe, uh, maybe that makes sense. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> exactly. It's like um, maybe massive question mark. <laughs> one thing I think is important to know is that this yeah. may be obvious to everyone but me, but like yeah. there is no retail sector. Retail is very diverse. Mm. Um, and so the, the, if you look at the skew level across major retailers, an individual skew is very rarely sold by many retailers. Um, mm. Home Depot and Walmart probably have very little overlap in terms of the SKUs they sell. And then you you add in a major um, a, a major um, kind of supermarket retailer like Publix or um, or Walgreens, and they may have very few SKUs in common with the other two. Um, so it's by its nature quite fragmented and subscale, which is a challenge to the advertisers and marketers because they, they only care about a weird subset of the retail media landscape. There is literally not a single advertiser in the world who would want to advertise across all retail media networks. No, I, I, I agree. I agree with you 100% on that point. Um, there, there is a lot there around um, there's enough space for everyone i mean there's enough domains and niches and categories where there's value like i mean the challenge for marketers that want to go across a variety of retail media is like how do we do that without spending a lot of resources and learning on each one you know and that's that's an interesting yeah. challenge in its own right but you're right that you know retail is very different on the individual product level their brand their territories and where they actually operate in the world as well so yeah it's a great yeah. point you raise um but i want to uh, we got this is the second last question and this is one is perhaps a little bit more personal um you have built your career in ad tech you've been a, a, an executive um for a successful acquired um ad tech company as you mentioned before you've known the space inside of out you live and breathe it um and recently we're seeing this what i call like a growing malaise of just negative press negative attention towards the ad tech sector from everything from media math sudden implosion to the department of justice case which uh, again in this week middle of september we're seeing that case just open up the google antitrust ad tech monopoly case that the doj is leveling against the company and that's just a couple of uh, quite a few different negative stories that are coming around ad tech how do you feel about all this I mean, how does that like impact you and your perception of your career? How do you address it? Sure. Um, it's a good yeah. question. Um, I'll start with my defense yeah. of ad tech and then I'll go to my criticism <laughs> of ad tech. So the naive point of view that I hear yeah. all the time on Twitter from people who don't know what they're talking about is that if not for ad tech, publishers that are of quality like the New York Times and the Financial Times would make a lot of money and everyone would be happy and we'd go back to the good old days. And that is just categorically untrue because the nature of internet distribution means that the audience for any publisher, including the largest ones, are, is fragmented. There is no way in which an advertiser contracting directly with a single publisher could get optimal results because the audience is coming from all different walks of life, all different geographies, all different times of day. And the New York Times would never be able to effectively sell an ad that runs at three in the morning to a user in Zimbabwe um, without ad tech. Um, so I fundamentally reject the blanket criticism of ad tech that it is not useful. I think ad tech is responsible for oh. the continued survival of journalism, media, creativity on the web. Hmm. Um, now, why do I think it gets so much criticism and deserved criticism? 
because ad tech fundamentally has a tragedy of the commons problem. Um, I could start a new ad tech company tomorrow that was based on pretty generic technology. I could probably start serving ads on major sites pretty quickly, and I might be a bad actor, or if not a bad actor, I might just be a low quality actor, and publishers may take my ads because they need money. Um, and so without regulation, without any barriers to entry, ad tech continuously disappoints by having low quality sellers of ads, meaning what's sometimes called a made for advertising website, yes. crappy, crappy websites, we've all seen them, or fraudulent websites. And mm. on the buy side, you have low quality advertising that pollutes nice looking web pages that maybe does things you don't want it to do, that tricks your grandma into clicking on something she shouldn't click on. Um, and I think that's the fundamental problem. And the way to get over that problem is either regulation or self-regulation that to date has made things better, but hasn't made things great. Um, and I'd love to see it, you know, fulfill its ultimate promise. What is that ultimate promise to preserve a free and open internet? Was that right? Or... I think I think the you want a free and open internet and you want that yeah. to include the ability of, of independent media companies to generate advertising dollars. Like I'm old enough to remember the world where it was very, very difficult to create a new media company. You'd need to raise tens of millions of dollars to produce a new magazine or a new TV channel. Mm -hmm. And in the one of the great things about the internet is that you or I can create an, a website, get traffic and sell ads and make some money without any gatekeepers. So, so that has to be part of the solution, right? Mm -hmm. um, but with that said, I think that having um, some sort of agreed upon domain of quality on the buy and the sell side is really important. Not everyone should be able to start selling their ads in a liquid market and w without people knowing who they are. And the same is true on the advertiser side. Um, you shouldn't be able to just put up a credit card, start serving ads and defraud people or otherwise, you know, create problems. I don't know if the right answer is government regulation, self-regulation or some technology solution. Um, but I think as the, the industry has done quite well in chopping off the worst uh, offenses um, <laughs> within the last five years there's a there's a, there's a protocol called ads.text which got rid yeah. of some of the worst abuses um so i think we're heading in the right direction it just requires a lot of work mm. so what's the feeling word there is it optimistic it is optimistic. I, I mean, the yeah. state of web publishing and monetization yeah. is much better than it was five or 10 years ago. Yeah, that's awesome. It's very interesting because if you look at how media is covering ad tech, you would assume you would assume that it's it's in a doom loop. Right. But that it's actually heading in a, in a far worse direction. I think that, yeah, that you said it was naive to, to say that ad tech is all negative. I think I agree with you on that point because- um, a lot of people that don't work in ad tech or don't understand the industry, um, they see it as, oh, they're evading our privacy. You know, right. they're they're addicting our kids to social media. Um, they're creating all these inverse incentives. They're awarding the worst bad actors. You know, it's creating all these problems in media and content consumption and online internet addiction, mobile phone. And it's creating you know, all these problems around um, like data breaches and, and security and, you know, um, putting yeah. people in harm's way. And all of those things are true, but I also counter that to say, well, look at how much untold trillions of dollars in value the internet has unlocked for people in all parts of the world, um, myself included. You know, I I literally um, got my first real job 
in marketing technology through a friend I met only online on Facebook. And I asked him for That's a recommendation. Amazing. And he gave me a recommend. He, he recommended me to a job and I, and I got the job and there was no way I would have, I was not qualified for that job, <laughs> <You know? laughs> but he, he vouched for me. He vouched for me. And the only way I met, I met him was through interacting with him on posts and commenting through the grapevine on Facebook, or this is years ago. And why does that exist? Because Facebook's ad revenue generated. So, you know, I'm the beneficiary. You are the beneficiary of um, a lot of these platforms that are getting so much negative attention. I just feel like we need more balance in this in, in how we think about the benefits and the ne negative externalities of this stuff. Yeah, I think that, I mean, the, the effect yeah. of technology, yeah. the PC revolution, the internet, internet advertising, internet publishing is the most transformative, positive change that's happened in my lifetime, um, mm. being about 50 years old at this point. Um, and if you believe that, it, just in terms of ad tech, if you believe that ad tech is a negative force for the, not, not for the consumers, but for the participants, meaning the publishers and advertisers, you would have to believe that every single one of the tens of thousands of professionals in the ad tech industry is making a bad decision every day of their lives and would be better off just stopping what they're doing because they would make more money like they, not and it wouldn't be altruistic they would make more money if they stopped their job and mm. that is wholly unbelievable it makes no sense and you will see trolls come out on twitter every day saying oh at new york times would be better off if they didn't have ads and they'll cite these random case studies the financial times turned off <laughs> ads for a day and they made more money like that. <laughs> yeah okay fine i mean like sure like if i skip lunch maybe i'll like you know uh, feel healthier for a couple of hours i mean i don't know it's just a non-scientific test anyway uh, i could go off on this for a while no, I, I agree. I, I I agree, and I think that there is a. Um, I think the problem is the the space, the development, and the growth in the space is less than a generation old, and so most technological change. So I, the thing that inspired me to get into this industry wasn't tech. It was actually well, the tech that we have today was the Gutenberg press. You know, five hundred years ago, it inspired the the Reformation, the split, the schism between the Catholics and the Protestants. You because don't look that old. Well, you know, it's, well, I feel all because I, my background is actually in theology. I spent a ton of time learning uh, church history and, um, and anthropology and, and like ancient history and, and things like that. And you know what happened back in those days, you know, it's, uh, it's fascinating because uh, Martin Luther, he caused the schism. So before then it was just Catholicism and the information was like literally back in, back in those days, there was no media outlets. There was no real corporations. It was, um, you know, it was villages of people and there were cities, of course, but all the information was flow, like literally all the information about faith and what's going on in society was filtered down from the Pope. And you'd have churches that that would be delegated to filter the information down to the people. And Martin Luther, he was an innovator in to say, well, no, people can actually learn this stuff themselves and actually read it for themselves because most people were illiterate back then. So they could only rely on the information that was auditory. It was actually presented to them. They couldn't read it for themselves. And Martin Luther, he banged his 95 thesis on the church door and and then he printed it. And then he got it into the hands and then he started school and started teaching people how to read. And then that spread like wildfire across Europe. And it led to a whole new schism of like, it actually is like a foundation of what we see in democracy and even the American um, ideals around, you know, self-actualization and, you know, being able to learn and not rely on others for information specifically. So 
So anyway, with all that to say, and this is very obviously the left field for an ad tech, martech uh, conversation, but all that to say, that led us up to this point where we're like, well, the internet is just the Gutenberg press times a billion, you know, like it's the same dynamics 500 years apart. Um, but would you say, Guten um, would you say yeah. Martin Luther was the first blogger? Well, he wasn't the first blogger, but he was the first probably internet troll. So, well, no, not troll. He was, <laughs> he, he, it was actually, if you read his writings, like even though he was a monk, he, he would swear he would like the, the criticisms that he levied against the Catholic leadership were he very similar to the pylons of Twitter. Yeah. Like, like it was very, yeah. Yeah. If you go back and so, you know, like human history and, and uh, the dynamics of things never change really. But in, in my view, uh, what that caused actually the Gutenberg press was uh, what well, it caused like, like a hundred years of um, wars and conflicts and beheadings. It caused so much suffering because of this new technology was able to scale information to, um, you know, to many more people than handwritten books. And the internet is the same. Like we just, I think that right now I'm optimistic that we're just, we're coping with the early days of the Gutenberg press in a different format and totally different incentives with way more stakes, you know? So I kind of have a lot of empathy for people in ad tech because they're dealing with stuff that we don't truly comprehend just yet. It's important, it's impact on society and it's ongoing influence in human history, you know? So I'm kind of like, look, we're all trying to just figure this stuff out, you know? And, and I get yeah. that like a lot of people have been significantly harmed by that. However, every big technology shift has caused both positive and negative. You can't you can't ignore that fact. And Martin Luther didn't even have a sponsor for those theses. I mean, imagine if you just put a little banner ad or QR code at the bottom, call to action, start a new church. You, you know how he made money? He sold beer. Well, in, he, the, sell, in the oh, he sold beer. Yeah, okay. yeah. He sold, that's, so that's they, they used the German monasteries used to make they used to um yeah they they were beer sellers yeah and so they would have right, their so own brewery yeah so, so that's how they funded their operation controversy and start uh, selling the beer that sounds like a good business model too <laughs> well speaking of controversy I've left the best question for last before we wrap okay, up okay well, best question I'm ready the 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 best okay here we go so you're running for political office on your list of things to do right at the top of this conversation one was run for political <laughs> office. Let's say you take the senators, you take a senator's seat, or you're you're, you're going yeah. for it, right? Um, what would be your campaign slogan? Okay, would you that's have pretty one? Good. So, so I actually have already established this on Twitter years ago, uh, yeah. which was the the and this is a very New York thing. Yeah. So this is a global podcast. A lot of people may not get it, uh, but it's it's a good one, which is to nationalize the Knicks. Um, so Ooh. New York sports. There's this guy named James Dolan who had owns many of the sports teams in New York and he's mm -hmm. a he's a inherited billionaire he didn't do anything with his life he's an idiot he has regularly considered one of the worst sports owners in the world he's just a dumb dumb person and he owns the Knicks and he owns the Rangers and he owns I think he owns another team I don't even remember he owns Madison Square Garden where they play and there's no way to get rid of him because he owns them and you know if a politician tries to get rid of him he just pay, he has so much money he funds the opposition so I would just go right at it. I would nationalize his teams. I would take them over, make them a public good, and I would do anything I could to stop him. Doesn't New York have like a huge rat problem at the moment? We do. But doesn't every city? I mean, like, yeah, we do. It's actually become a lot worse since COVID because um, <laughs> New, New, it's interesting. Unlike most major cities around the world, New York traditionally had very little outdoor dining. 
Um, so oh, if like you go that. to Paris, London, wherever, everyone's outside yeah. having a pint or eating whatever. And New York never had that because they had very restrictive laws about where you were allowed to do outdoor dining. And mm. when COVID hit, they just let it free, let it free. And every restaurant opened outdoor dining oh. without a lot of regulation. They put up these shacks that are sort of mm. half half-assed, not very well-constructed. And as a result, it's become a rat bonanza. Um, and um, and we're still suffering from that. I love it. Nationalize the Knicks. And Nationalize make, the Knicks. Make, make, uh, make outdoor dining great again. There you go. It's a good platform yes, to run exactly. on. exactly. <laughs> well, thanks for joining me, Ari. It was fantastic. What a fascinating conversation covering a lot of different topics. Um, the last question for you, uh, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, where do you like to chat with people? Hard to avoid me. Hard to avoid me on the internet. Uh, Twitter is your best bet. It's at AriPap, A-R-I-P-A-P. Um, if you go to launchscience.com, launchscience.com, you can set up a demo with me. I have my Calendly right there. Uh, and then architecture.tv. It's like architecture with an M at the beginning. Uh, that is available as a website with a subscription, but also as a podcast. Great. Well, definitely go check out uh, what Ari's working on. There's always going to be some interesting launches. I'm, I'm very certain of that. Um, but we are regularly interviewing people uh, that were featured all the time in the MarTech Weekly. Um, we delve into the topics that subscribers care about and really track the people that are at the forefront of the industry so that are building incredible technologies and solving the hard problems. So if you'd like to read and subscribe and stay updated, you can go to themartechweekly.com. If you love this episode, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast catcher, and, and we'd love to see you there as well. Um, but Ari, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. This was great.